Sigo, and welcome to the program. Look, I like I said uh, in my last podcast, I am uh, trying to get back into the swing of things in the uh, aftermath of uh, having some uh, medical issues with the surgery that I ha had performed um, on my knee, and uh, this is probably no better topic for me to visit uh, on one of these comeback programs than the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. Um, so let me explain a little bit. I haven't done a program on this in a while, and and perhaps it needs a little bit of revisitation here. So even before um, the, the much-acclaimed voyage of Colum Christopher Columbus uh, in his attempt to go east by going west, uh, there was already... Um, some language coming out of the the Vatican, uh, the Pope uh, Nicholas, in fact, was the Pope Nicholas V or something like that, um, in uh, 1455, a long time ago, which was authorizing Portugal to go into Western Africa and essentially take whatever they wanted. You know, they, they, in a way, it's, it's supposed, supposed to be, you know, somehow in the uh, interest of spreading Christendom, but it really wasn't. It was about slavery. It was about taking resources. It was about literally pillaging villages of people who weren't Christian. So this papal bull of, um, of, uh, of uh, 1455 is the first in a series of papal bulls that would be the legal foundation for what the world would come to know and accept as the doctrine of Christian discovery or the doctrine of discovery. And, and, and again, in, in that first papal bull, he literally, the Pope literally authorizes King Ferdinand to go into these uh, lands of Saracens and enemies of Christ and to take all their possessions, you know, and commit the people to perpetual servitude, but to do whatever they wanted to these people. Now, this was at the dawn of what was con being considered the colonial period, where these nations of Europe were, were trying to uh, recover from their over-exploitation of their own lands by occupying others. So this is the first one. The next one of note comes in the wake of the news that Columbus had, uh, had come upon, again, another land that was not full of Christians, that was full of... Um, pagans, or as the, the church called them, enemies of Christ. Anybody who wasn't a Christian was an enemy, uh, dubbed automatically an enemy. And so another papal bull was re released, which, which further um, embraced, if not authorized or promoted, this spread of Christendom into these lands of, of pagans. And again, authorized slavery and the taking of property. And and, and, and then there would be uh, several more that were probably less descriptive and less uh, offensive in nature, but they were all offensive in nature. And this would be the foundation for this, again, for this, what would become to be known as the doctrine of discovery or more accurately, the doctrine of Christian discovery. And th what that doctrine said was that any Christian nation could go into a land that was not occupied by Christians and treat it as if it wasn't occupied by human beings at all. In fact, they call it terra nullis, a void, lands that were void, void of humanity. And in doing this, 
they could reduce the the indigenous people to, to those lands to the level of uh, of animals who, who just happened to live there. And they could also make the claim that because we were a uh, inferior people, if, if human beings at all, we certainly couldn't hold title to land. And so this was the basis for the doctrine of, of discovery. It, was, it, it enabled these countries to embrace this church dogma, this Christian doctrine, in, and then codify it into their laws in such a way that it would solve their, um, their problems when it came to how it is that they would come to claim these lands. Uh, especially, even as these lands were, were exchanged between, between the Christian nations, there was never any explanation on how those Christian nations would, would gain title to the land until there would be, you know, some, some legal cases. But, you know, and we have, we have to talk about uh, Justice John Marshall in his trilogy of, of, of cases that, uh, that talk about land title, talk about jurisdiction. Uh, it, in, in 1823 is when John Marshall essentially codified the doctrine of Christian discovery. And he, and he made some claims like that our sovereignty, and, he, and so he almost acknowledges in a way that, that we were a people that had a certain domain, you know, although I don't know that our use of the word sovereignty is the same as theirs, but, um, but he said that our sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon discovery. Doesn't explain how, but that's what he said. He said that simply by, by, uh, you know, by the happenstance of, of Christian people laying eyes on us, that we no longer could sustain or uh, maintain our, um, our standing. But it actually didn't even start there. I mean, you go back to, uh, to when Jefferson was president, when, when he does the Louisiana Purchase, which he purchased from the French, who got it from the Spanish, who claimed it from you know, hundreds of, of, of different native peoples, you know, in, in that area. Well, Jefferson would send Lewis and Clark on the expedition, what he called the, 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 core, the, the cores of, um, of discovery. And he would send them on, on this mission to explore the lands that, that Jefferson claimed he just bought, but also to deliver a message to all the native people that they would encounter, that that the land was now under the sovereignty of the United States. Now, most native people wouldn't even understand what the hell they were talking about, but they would, they would tell these native people that, uh, that your, president, your president is Thomas Jefferson. They were even handing out medals with his likeness on it as, as some sort of token. Um, so this is 1803. So in 1803, Thomas Jefferson is already operating the United States uh, as a country that is expanding its, uh, its land base through the, not just through how they bartered with other nations, European nations, but, but under this dogma, under this doctrine of, of discovery. And, and literally telling people who had never even met, met a white man that, um, oh yeah, your land is now under the sovereignty of the United States and you have a new country. Um, it's not yours, it's ours. Um, uh, but, you're going to be allowed to live here. And uh, you have a president, and his name is Thomas Jefferson. So this is what Thomas Jefferson is saying in 1803. Now, it doesn't become as really codified into U.S. law until the case that, John, that uh, um, Justice Marshall uh, presides over, uh, or he's the chief justice, and the Supreme Court rules in what is called Johnson v. McIntosh, which is an argument between white, two white guys claiming um, 
if not possession, occup occupation of um, um, uh, lands that were of, of Cher were Cherokee lands. And they claimed that, you know, one had gotten permission to be there from the Cherokee and the other said they got it from the state. And so the way that Justice John Marshall in the Supreme Court ruled was that, oh, Native people don't have title to land. That, you know, that, that the Christian nations and um, the discovering Christian nations and, and, and subsequently the United States has title to the land. So this is what, this is what the basis of the doctrine of discovery, it, 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 I mean, in some of the language that, that uh, Marshall used, he said that, that we didn't have title land, we, si we simply had a right to occupancy. Now, but even that right to occupancy, which is essentially similar to what animals might have had, was never, um, it was never really recognized. I mean, we were, we were constantly being driven from land. But this doctrine of discovery would not just be about land. It would be about resources. It would be about freedom. Native people, you know, from the time the Columbus landed to right up until, until slavery would ultimately be abolished, Native people were being, uh, were being enslaved. And the assimilated Native people will be encouraged to take slaves. I mean, so it's, it's a, you know, it is really just this bizarre thing. And when I say assimilated, I mean Christianized. Because, again, keep in mind that none of the atrocities committed against Native people under the Doctrine of, uh, under the doctrine of Discovery should have happened if the Native people were, had become Christian. And many did. Many did become uh, Christians simply to avoid that, uh, those atrocities. But it didn't help. I mean, we, we know during the Revolutionary War, there was a, a, um, a group of Lenape uh, that were murdered um, in, you know, just be between what is considered Ohio and, and Pennsylvania, Madden Hutton Massacre or something like that it's called, where, and these were all Christians. And because the uh, colonials believed that, uh, that they may have be, be siding or they may have a, a leaning towards, uh, towards Great Britain, they were, they were murdered. They were clubbed. They were, they were all huddled into, uh, into certain buildings, had the buildings locked up or, or nailed shut, and then the buildings were set fire. So many of them were, were just burnt alive um, or uh, unconscious. So being Christian alone certainly didn't protect um, didn't really protect Native people from this doctrine of discovery being, uh, being imposed upon them. Nor did having treaties like, like the Canandaigua Treaty, which we can argue about its, its legitimacy because of how it was ratified and who it was ratified by, but the Canandaigua Treaty of 1794 clearly laid out. Now, this is before, I mean, this is, this is before 1803, right? This is before any of this stuff would be codified. In fact, it would be, it'd be like 30 years before uh, Johnson v. McIntosh. But in, in that treaty, it, it mentions several times that the United States recognized that, that the six nations own our land. And they acknowledged our ownership, and they, uh, and they vowed that they will uh, never impose, they will never claim the same, nor interfere with our free use and enjoyment of that land, or the free use and enjoyment of our allies on that land. Of course, we know that's not true. In fact, fast forward to 2005, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the liberal darling of the Supreme Court at the time, would actually cite the Doctrine of Discovery in spite of the fact that there was a, a treaty asserting that we had title to land. But, and she wrote in her footnotes that you know, under, the, uh, under the Doctrine of Discovery, the, the land title held by Indians became vested in the sovereign, first the discovering nations of Europe, and then ultimately the colonies, and then the United States. She doesn't say how it did, just that it did.
She writes this in her, in her footnote. So, so this Jewish woman that cites the doctrine of Christian discovery as the reason to rule against the Oneidas in 2005. But I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So, so, but there is that. Um, but here's the thing. So the atrocities were so extreme that were being committed, especially by Spain, who was now on, on the forefront after Columbus's voyage, voyage. Remember, he was sailing for Spain. Um, and they were really getting into not just the Caribbean, but into, uh, in, into South America. And, and they had holy men with them. They had bishops. They had, they had you know, folks that were, uh, that were already there trying to convert native people at, at the end of a sword. <laughs> but the atrocities were so extreme that one priest traveled back to Rome and spoke of these atrocities. And so in spite of the fact that there was as many as, as five or six papal bulls that supported the doctrine of Christian discovery, in, uh, in 1853, there was a, um, a papal bull issued called uh, Sublimus Deus, the Subl sublime God. And this was by uh, 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 Pope Paul III. And he basically said, we define and declare that said Indians and all other people who may be discovered by Christians are by no means to be deprived of their liberty or their possessions of their property, even though they may be outside the Christian faith. And specifically said, condemned uh, and, and, and prohibited uh, uh, enslavement. So that, that comes in 1853. But you know what? It got no regard. The conquistadors in, in South America that would now go into Central America and, and into North America, they, they disregarded. In fact, all the nations did. So you have a series of papal bulls that established the doctrine of, of Christian discovery. Then you have one that condemns some of the atrocities. But it gets buried. None of the nations accept this. I mean, they, they do on its face because many, men, all these nations were Christian nations. Even the Catholic Church, or even um, England hadn't, uh, and Great Britain, hadn't formed its own Anglican Church yet. There, was no, no, there were no Protestant religions. There was one. It was the, the Catholic Church. And the Pope wielded a lot of authority, uh, not just moral authority, but, but legal authority. And once these nations would, would accept this doctrine as law and and, and it swept through Africa, Australia, obviously, you know, the, the whole Western Hemisphere. But this became this, this clearly well-established right for Christians to have their way with the rest of the world. Now, the rest of the world, who wasn't Christian, they, they didn't um, go along with this willingly, but, but, they, but they were... They were not only, in some cases, overpowered because of uh, uh, because of the warlike nature of spreading this this Christian dogma, but they were also defrauded. You know, I, I would argue that when we talk about treaties in you know quote unquote Indian treaties, they aren't just um, broken; they were fraud from the start. Because if you lay, if Thomas Jefferson is already laying the foundation in 1803. Ignoring uh, a treaty that was written just a few years prior in, in 1794. But if they're already establishing that, that this doctrine of Christian discovery just lets us take the land, you understand that every one of those treaties that were negotiated were fraud. This was just a way to get in and to manipulate Native people's thinking in, and, and just take the land. 
So it wasn't that the treaties were broken. They were fraud from the start. Every single one of them. Every one of them. So when we talk about, uh, you know, whether the United States had the right to abrogate a treaty or not, well, they may have the right, they may declare they have that right, but does that mean that the, the Native people on the other side could, could break that? And, and, and if, the, if the treaty is broken, does the land come back? Of course it doesn't. And especially when you realize that they were all fraud. Most of the, the language in these treaties, and most of them weren't even ratified properly. I mean, a treaty, a legal treaty in the United States is supposed to be ratified, uh, you know, ratified by, Cong uh, by the Senate. But it, and, and by two-thirds of the Senate, not just a, 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 a slim um, majority. And then there's the issue of, well, who gets to ratify it on the Native side? Oftentimes, it was just anybody that could get, get to put an X on a piece of paper. Um, there was, there was so, so much of that whole treaty process was illegitimate. And then when the, the, when the Supreme Court would, would end the treaty-making period of the United States, they wouldn't end the abuse that would happen through contracts and that kind of stuff. I mean, look, we still have these so-called gaming compacts, which we, we, you know, that, are, that are authorized and called for by the federal government and entered into between states and, and native territories. And states don't have the right to, to enter into treaties. And in fact, when the states did, like New York did have uh, treaties with, with native people, eventually the United States would have to recognize those treaties and make them essentially you know, federal law. Because they would, otherwise, you could, you, well, you couldn't have states negotiating international treaties. And they were international treaties. We, we were being acknowledged in word anyway, even though it was fraud, as, uh, as sovereigns that could enter into it. Two sovereigns have to enter into a treaty. You can't have one sovereign and, then, and what, a subjugated people? Even though you had Thomas Jefferson running around for, for already telling people, oh, yeah, the, the country's not yours anymore. You're, and and then again, when when Justice John Marshall rules in these Cherokee cases, and and then defines that our sovereignty no longer exists because we were discovered, he actually equates discovery with conquest, and he, and he calls it a pretension. You know, in other words, we're going to pretend that discovering a people by by virtue of the doctrine of discovery is the same thing as conquering them. We don't even have to we don't even have to lift a uh, lift a blade against them. We don't have to fire a musket at them. There were conflicts, but you know what? In the overall scheme of things, for any of those people who claim that Native people were conquered by, uh, by the Americans, there were only, yeah, there may have been 50 armed conflicts between Native peoples and, um, and the United States. But you're talking about six, seven, maybe 800 distinct nations, and only 50 of them? And not all of them lost, by the way. <laughs> I mean, the Seminoles, you know, withstood everything the United States could throw at them. So, yes, but in the end of the day, you didn't need to have a, um, uh, a surrender treaty because you're still relying on this doctrine of discovery. So now let's talk about what, what happened last week. Uh, so on March 30th, day before, or a couple of days before April Fool's Day, um, they should have just waited a couple of days. That way they could have really pulled this thing off. The Catholic Church, the Vatican, issues the statement um, after years and years, you know, of, of people protesting, including, you know, my friend Stephen Newcomb, who, who would write the, the book Pagans in the Promised Land. Um, he would uh, co-produce the film, The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the, the Domination Code. I mean, he, 
Stephen Newcomb is the singular, the most singular authority on the doctrine of discovery. He taught us all. He taught every one of us what it was, how it came to be, how the what the language was of those papal bulls, and and how it was manipulated by the. Well, I want to say it wasn't manipulated, and that's a wrong word because I'm going to get to that one later. How it was used and how it was intended to be used. That's the key. How it was intended to be used, and and of course it. You know, oftentimes the, the church would always settle back and say, well, this is part of our, our mission to, to spread the word of God and, and to do this missionary work and, uh, and, and proselytize and, and, and all of this stuff. But this was conversion at the end of a sword. And, and oftentimes it wasn't conversion at all. It was, it, it was just, you know, this, this domination code as Stephen, Stephen Newcomb talks about. But so we learn about all this stuff. And then we hear... Again, last week, um, that the, the Catholic Church is now repudiating the doctrine of discovery, not rescinding, because, and I'm going to get into, into the difference here. Look, Stephen Newcomb was one of the first people to, to actually confront some of the legal uh, um, the lawyers for the Vatican. But there have been protests, including when the Pope came to Canada, uh, I think it was just last year, and, and supposedly apologized for residential schools. Now, he didn't accept any, any responsibility from the, from the church, from the Vatican, but he apologized for what the churches might have done, what the individual you know, um, uh, churches might have done. But he didn't accept any responsibility for the, the role the Vatican has, had played in, in all of that abuse, sexual abuse, torture, assimilation, all the stuff that, that frankly violated this papal bull from, uh, from 1537. Because here, here's the thing. Even though the church claims to have issued a bull that would somewhat repudiate the, the, uh, most of the characteristics of the doctrine of discovery, the church didn't follow it either. The church would go on for centuries exploiting, taking riches, gold and silver and whatever else they could get, especially out of South America and Central America. They would, they would take children. They would, they would force the religion upon them. Uh, this same pope canonized or, or you know, made uh, beatified, whatever the word is, uh, uh, as, a, as made him a saint. I don't know what miracle he performed, but uh, made him a saint. And this guy was personally responsible for the deaths of hundreds, maybe thousands of children. Because whether a child lived or not under his care, wasn't important as long as he baptized him because he was delivering souls to Jesus. And this is what, um, what this current pope, the same one who's sitting in there as, they're, as, they're, as they're, they are repudiating the doctrine of discovery. Now, let's talk about what repudiation means. Repudiation means that you're, that you're condemning it, that you're disagreeing it, you're, you're, you're rejecting it. Rescinding means that it was yours, and, you t and, you're, and you're taking it back. You're, you're, you're changing. You're, you're rescinding the papal bulls that were responsible. In this statement from the Vatican, they were suggesting, well, some of those early papal bulls weren't real clear um, about what their intentions were, and, um, and for political purposes, they were manipulated by, by nations. No, they weren't. <laughs> those papal bulls were clear. They were marching orders. They were praise for the nations that were that were conducting these atrocities against people now 
when the details of those atrocities came down, yeah, then you start realize, okay, now they're going a little bit too far. They're just chopping heads off for the sake of chopping heads off. They're chopping limbs off. They're dismembering people. They're they're feeding people to dogs. I mean, the atrocities went well beyond Columbus's time. And so they had to walk it back a little bit, but nobody paid attention to walking it back, including the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church would go on for centuries benefiting from the doctrine of discovery that they created. And and let's not stop with, with, with what was being done you know, through, through Spanish rule, you have to look at what the Catholic Church's role was, again, with residential schools, which was still a continuation of all of that. It was a continuation of all of that behavior. And, and, and it all stood in stark violation of uh, Sublimus Deus of, 18, of, of 1537. So nobody ever condemned that stuff. And in fact, this, this Vatican mentions Sublimus Deus. They don't mention the papal bulls before that that, that, you know, that authorized or created the Doctrine of Discovery. And they also don't mention any accountability. They, they take no responsibility for the Doctrine. They say, well, the language wasn't real clear. Yeah, it was pretty clear. And, and the reason we know that is because of the good work of guys like Stephen Newcomb. Stephen Newcomb make it, broke it right down, made it perfectly clear for us. And if you didn't want to read about it, you can watch it in, in, in the film, The Doctrine of Discovery. I mean, this was made very clear to all of us. Not only by, by Stephen, uh, Stephen and the great work that he did, but we all picked it, picked it up and we, and because we all understood it. We, all, we understood what, what Stephen was telling us. And we saw how it played out. And, and, and we would see jurisdictional issues rely on the Doctrine of Discovery. Land use issues rely on the Doctrine of Discovery. Land claims issues rely. I mean, that, that's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg, he, she cites the Doctrine of Discovery in 2005, footnote number one, and makes a couple of other uh, leaps at some legal doctrines. Of course, it was already, I don't know if it was unanimous, but it was, it was a majority ruling. And you know, so she ruled with, with the right on this. Um, I mean, she later would some uh, try to walk it back in the book that she wrote, but didn't change anything. See, that's the thing. If you come to a realization later that something that you, that you or your country was responsible or you personally were responsible for, and you come to that realization later and do nothing. Look, the Catholic Church should know this. There's this thing called contrition, penance. Well, what do you pay? Not just to God, but what do you pay? How do you, you create contrition for the sins that you committed? Even if you were doing it in the name of the church, and, and the God that they claim to represent, the infallible you know, popes of the, of the Vatican. You don't. You don't do anything to correct it. You apologize, and then we're supposed to be stupid enough to accept that apology? So when the church repudiated this, they didn't take any ownership or any responsibility. The, the closest thing they did was say, well, some of the language of the previous bulls were a little, was a little unclear. No, it was perfect. It was perfectly clear. And if you don't take any ownership of it, if you don't say, I mean, and look, the church has been trying to walk back the doc since the, the first days that we, we condemned the, the Vatican over this. And, and again, led by Stephen Newcomb, the church was already saying, well, we don't really follow that anymore. Yeah, but that's not a repudiation. And that's certainly not a rescinding. Um, they would cite, in fact, it's been cited many times along the way, uh, Sublimus Deus. Yeah, but even you, the church, didn't 
follow through on this. You, I mean, you were enslaving children for, for all intents and purposes. And, and you did it through your, your saint, Huna Parasera. You did it through residential schools in Canada and the United States and every place else in the planet, by the way. So no, you didn't change your behavior after Sublimus Deus. The, the die was cast, and, and that doctrine became international law. That's what, that's what Jefferson said. Well, this is, you know, this is common law. This is common law throughout, the, throughout international law. And, of course, it would be codified in the law by, by Justice John Marshall. But, no, they didn't do anything to take ownership or accountability for it. It's easy for us to, you know, for, it's easy for a third party to repudiate it. And, and let's be clear. In 2007, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, the, in, in one of the, the main affirmations, and that's what I have here, in the third affirmation of, the, uh, of the, essentially the preamble, says, affirming further that all doctrines, policies, and practices based on or advocating superiority of peoples or individuals on the basis of national origin, racial, religious, ethnic, or cultural differences are racist, scientifically false, legally invalid, morally condemnable, and socially unjust. Now, the United States and Canada voted against this thing because how, how would they respond if they, if, if they accepted this thing on face value, saying all of the doctrines that were followed are legally invalid? All of those, those racist doctrines that, that, that your country was built upon. And, and to be clear, let me remind people, the initial papal bull was about the enslavement of Africans. And that would, be, that, would, that would become the biggest industry in the United States at some point. The enslavement of black people. Native people too, but our population was already... See, we didn't make great slaves. We were, we were better off dead because of the claims that we could make. And so Native people were, were you know, there was a depopulation program, as they called it. It wasn't as much about, I mean, eventually they would, they would try assimilation and indoctrination and, and doing it through our children, through these residential schools. But plenty of kids died there too. But yeah, so this has been condemned internationally, um, but it's all toothless. I mean, is the Catholic Church going to uh, specifically cite the United States as some sort of war criminal? For what it's done with the Doctrine of Discovery? Of course not. Is the UN going to do it? Of course not. And for the church to repudiate, now look, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm glad they, they finally said the words. I mean, it's kind of like when the Pope went to Canada. I'm glad he finally said the words genocide. I mean, I'm glad he said that. But he was, he was slow to come to that. But he took no responsibility for it. And, and, and nor does, is this Pope, I, I realize that this statement came from the Vatican, the Pope's been sick, so I don't know how personally responsible he was for this. Although he has tried to walk back the, the association between the Catholic Church and the Doctrine of Discovery it, during his whole tenure. I mean, and, and he has made statements that were pro-Indigenous people. So there's no question that he's done that. But every step along the way, we, we said, repudiate the doctrine of discovery, rescind the doctrine of discovery. Now that they repudiate it, among the first things that Native people said, yeah, but you didn't own it. You, rescinding it would have been better because it is something that you had 
responsibility for that you were rejecting now, that you were changing your tune. You were changing your stance. See, the Catholic Church would like to say, well, we've always been, uh, we've never you know, supported the doctrine of Christian discovery. Well, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. So where does this leave us? I mean, where does it leave us um, in terms of legal remedy? I mean, look, it'll be real difficult for, uh, for a Supreme Court justice to cite the doctrine of discovery again now that it's been repudiated by the church. But you know what? The thing about the United States is they've always tried to do the separation of church and state thing you know, on, on paper. And the doctrine of discovery is truly the doctrine of Christian discovery. So they never quite separated, the, separated it there. But they, they also never made the direct connection to codifying the doctrine of discovery into U.S. law as a church mandate. They've, you know, they basically stood by as the rest of the colonization was happening. Look, the United States essentially was a breakaway colony from, from Britain. So they could, they could utilize what Great Britain, what uh, or the United Kingdom, what France and, and Spain and Portugal and so many other countries who were fully engaged and ultimately other countries like, you know, like the countries who went into Africa um, and would claim you know, some sort of territorial, make territorial claims there. Look, we know the United States was able to cite what everybody else was doing. But the, what the United States did, in fact, the United States took the genocide of, of indigenous peoples almost to a level unknown uh, anyplace else. And, and, I'm not, and, and I'm not trying to, again, compare oppression, uh, you know, around the world because there were millions of people that were killed in... Uh, um, Africa. I mean, tens of millions of people who were killed in, in Africa, maybe hundreds of millions for all we know, uh, in, the, in the name of colonization and in the name of the doctrine of discovery. Not to mention how many people were, were ripped from Africa uh, for the slave trade in, in the Western Hemisphere. So, and the church was, yeah, it issued this, this one papal bull in, in 1537. But they they weren't they didn't enforce it they didn't they didn't condemn the nations I mean even as Spain would accept this sublimus Deus they wouldn't force Spain to impose it upon their their own um, colonial efforts and the conquistadors no not at all and in fact you would have church folks um, every step along the way documenting some of the, some of the horrors they were documenting. But some of them, like like Sarah, uh, he was a part of it. I mean, he was a part of creating this environment where men who were no longer with their families could just have their way with Native people. And then he'd just pick up the children along the way and convert them, baptize them. And then, then if they died, that's okay. He saved their soul. So this repudiation by the, the Catholic Church does not go far enough. Um, and there probably is nothing the Catholic Church, even rescinding it, there's almost nothing the Catholic Church could do to affect international law. But what they could do is they could own their profiting from it and give, and, and give it back. They have enriched themselves to the tunes of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, especially in South America. And, you know, part of the thing is when the Catholic Church was taking their 10% from the conquistadors and from these colonial efforts, 
they, there was also language that I heard along the way where the Catholic Church says, well, we're, we're keeping that money for the benefit of the indigenous people. Well, how the hell did that work out? Because we haven't benefited a whole lot. In fact, your, the role the Catholic Church has played in the genocide, I would argue, continues to this very day. I, mean, I just heard a story today about you know, this revelation of, of atrocities committed by a couple of priests, I think, in Maryland or something, in New England someplace, and, and how it was covered up and how it, they used judges and they used um, uh, you know, the, the, how the church was involved in, in, in covering up the actions of these, of these depraved priests. But you know what? We're never going to have that level of detail thrown out there on the residential schools because the depravity that, that Native kids experienced in these residential schools would make any of the clergy sex abuse scandals pale by comparison. And, and that's, just, that's not just an opinion. We're talking about tens of thousands of children who were ripped away and placed in, uh, at, at the end. And you know, where do you think they sent those, those, uh, those rogue priests? They sent them to places like residential schools where they wouldn't be scrutinized with a good press or, or you know, uh, looking over their shoulders. Because a lot of these priests were, they were exposed. And, 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 and it became common knowledge amongst white people that, that these priests were, were deviant. But if you have complete um, uh, power of attorney over hundreds of kids in each institution, maybe thousands and some, there's nobody you're going to be held accountable to. And, and I can't separate the atrocities committed at the residential schools with any of the rest of the atrocities committed under the name, uh, in, in, the, in the name of the Doctrine of Discovery or in the name of the churches that were responsible for it. You know, the, the tough part is, and, and, and I've heard others, my, my friend Barry Dana was quick to, to mention that there are too many Native people in leadership that are complicit with the federal government and the state government, for that matter. They, they won't stand up and fight, and they won't take a strong position. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting to find out whether the Seneca Nation is going to continue to pay the state of New York revenue sharing after they got screwed by the state of New York for 20 years. Why? Because of complicity. Because that's what they're being advised by their legal counsel. They're not being advised by the people to do this. And the vast majority of Native people are horrified and traumatized by these centuries of genocide committed against our people. And we know that we're still experiencing it today. Look, I don't think the mascot issue is nearly as heinous as, as murder, but it's another example of how exploited Native people become, that even our identities can be stolen and used for amusement. And, and the, we, we can be cast as if we no longer exist. We're just these 18th century images plastered on a helmet or you know, on a mural in a, school, in a gymnasium. Folks, it's all related. And you can't talk about the, all of the things that were approved by the church through the doctrine of discovery and leave out the rape culture that came from Europe and the, the current missing and murdered indigenous women, boys, girls, people, and the fact that, that native women will have a four times greater 
likelihood of experiencing a sexual assault than anybody else in the United States. Why is that? I mean, there's certain statistics that should jump out at you, like, like gun violence and mass murderers and the raping of, of Native women. But they don't. You know, because you can discount us, you can dismiss us as a population. Many people will only think about Native imagery created by, by mascots or by film. Dances with Wolves. You know, the, the Wild Western, uh, you know, all the John Wayne movies. That's what you're going to, that's, that's what you envision when you, when you hear any word that is referencing us. Or maybe some, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, literature like uh, James Fenimore Cooper's uh, Last of the Mohican series and all that stuff. No, that, that's, that's what we're associated with. Not that we're still here. And then when people do come to understand that we are still here, they're going to pick and choose the most um, horrific characteristics that they can pin on us. I had somebody in Facebook say, well, the worst thing that, to, to harm Native images are Native people, are Indians themselves, just a bunch of drunks living off the, uh, off, you know, off the federal government. I mean, that's, that's the view they have. Or, or that you know, we're, we're all casino moguls, you know, living large off of, off of casino revenue, which none of that is true. I mean, the Seneca Nation is as successful as its gaming operation is. The state made as much money off of their gaming as they did. And if you look at the, the condition of the Native people, even in Seneca territory, even with all the programs, we're, most Senecas still live close to the poverty line. And it's not because a few Senecas are claiming all the money. It's not that. It's just that that's how they fund their entire government is off of three enterprises or, you know, and, and some ancillary um, enterprises as well. That's it. They don't have a tax system. They're not living off the federal government. Oh, there's probably still a few programs that make their way here. But for the most part, the Seneca Nation has tried to be as self-sufficient as possible. And, and they, frankly, they would be extremely self-sufficient if, if the state government wasn't screw, screwing them out of uh, half the revenue. But all of this stuff, including the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it comes because of the Doctrine of Discovery. Because the, because the, the federal government suggests that we are under their authority. When they cr created the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, they, they created it out of thin air. They had no legal authority or, or, or any, any uh, impetus to, to create this law other than their concern that a Supreme Court had ruled in favor of Native people in, in, a, in a gaming case. And they said, oh, we can't let Native people just have their own way. So they, they pass a law and they put, they put the state in, a, in our business. Every state has, has say over what happens, has some say over what happens with Native gaming, something that we have fought hard against for, you know, for decades. So, yeah, the Catholic Church repudiated the doctrine of discovery, and I'm not sure that it's going to have any more impact than when the United Nations did it through the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And frankly, I don't think we utilize the language of the UN Declaration, um, or if we're, I don't know that we, we properly util, will utilize this stuff coming out of the Vatican now. It's almost irrelevant because it is so embedded in international law, there's not, nobody's going to walk it back. But we have to push back. And, 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 I'm, and I've said it before, I think we need to use this reckoning with residential schools that the United States is only beginning the process of 
to push for restoration, not just reconciliation. There is no reconciliation. I mean, you can't reconcile something that we, we, I mean, we never had a great relationship. It was always, we were always being screwed by the federal government and the state governments. So there's no reconciliation, but there can be a level of restoration, of autonomy, of distinction, of lands, sovereignty. You can't give back the children that you killed. And frankly, you can't give back the, the children who died traumatized by almost 200 years of residential schools. But you can, we can put an assessment on what was truly lost during the residential school era and, and, and how the residential schools impacted those losses or caused those losses, including land, especially including our identity, our distinction, our autonomy, and our sovereignty. Then, and I've said it before, this is going to be the thing that I push harder than anything else. So, yeah, the, the church repudiated their doctrine of discovery without ever claiming ownership of it. So, we need to, we need to look at next steps. But, you know, like I, like I was saying, we need to reject this stuff. Yeah, and, and look, I know there's a lot of Native people who are Christians. <laughs> That's the effect of residential schools. That's the effect of colonization, of you know, everybody, and everything from conquistadors right up to, uh, to some of these deviant priests. But we need to take a hard look and not forgive those who have trespassed against us. No, we can't. We need to have restoration of what was lost, what was taken from us. We need to, be, we need to have those things restored. So that's my fuller assessment on the doctrine of Christian discovery and the uh, news that came out last week about the church repudiating it, not rescinding it, but repudiating it. So um, this is, uh, <laughs> it's tough because even good news has, you know, its downside to it. I want to thank you for listening. I am John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native.